Well, welcome back everyone to the Whitetail Theories podcast. It is now part two and we're recapping Blaze's Colorado elk hunt. So last time we let off, uh, there was quite the climbing events. Blaze, you had just heard an elk bugle and that kind of cut off our conversation and you went to go get set up on the, that elk. So why don't we just pick up from there and start going down that story? Yeah, bud. Hey, um, glad to be here again. And, uh, um, that was, that was actually the only bugle that we heard for the next 10 days. Um, we, we had scrambled up the mountain of probably about 1800 feet, maybe two miles to get to signal to talk, to do the last podcast. And we were talking, we, we, we literally said, man, when we get lunch, we're going to shoot a elk when we make lunch. I don't know why it was just a feeling my uncle had. And, um, so we made lunch while talking to you and all of a sudden right at the end of that bugle or right at the end of that podcast. And I don't know if that was your end or not, but I'm like, we, the bugle was like 200 yards, um, would have been East, but don't matter. Well, at the same height on the mountain as us, like the same elevation. So, as soon as I heard that, you know, obviously we ended the podcast and, um, and the hunt was on. So as soon as that was done, I had to collect all the stuff cause we were spread out all over like resting and, um, got on, got on the, um, I returned a cow call back to it and it immediately hit me back. And, um, by that time the thermals were rising, which was not good for us. Mm-hmm. So, by the time we scrambled, got the packs packed back up and started working our way up the hill or the mountain, the hill, um, the trail that we were kind of using was going um, parallel to the elevation. We needed to get higher. And so we were scrambling as hard as we could. We went about 400 feet in elevation and uh, the elk kept going above us because he kept trying to get us, trying to get our wind, right? Mm-hmm. So I kept. I kept going opposite of him, farther away from him, actually, and then still up on an angle. And it was just blow down city, and it was super steep, um, just super steep. Um, and what ended up happening is it was a race, like, to the top of the mountain. And, and obviously, I'm not going to win that at 255.11. So um, he got to the top of a drainage close to the top of the mountain, he was probably at about 10,005 and we made it to about 10,002. And, um, he got above us and I, and it was a drainage. So I couldn't go any, I couldn't go away from him anymore. He had, he had done the perfect elk thing. And, um, and as soon as he got above us, he did like a growl, like a bark. And, um, never returned a call and uh, so i knew i knew the thermos killed us on that the wind was okay but the thermos killed us so it's like an odd deal because that kind of that kind of put us off of our timing for where we were going to do base camp too because we'd spent four hours doing that and literally killed ourselves to do it so um we kind of hung our heads and walked down the ravine and we can't, we walked about half a mile 
and we're in the middle of nowhere in um, unit uh, 53. Yeah, 53. And um, we were skirting some private land, and I can comment on that later, but um, we, we, we ended up walking right into like a perfectly, like odd deal, just a perfect camp. Like someone had put a, you know, a campfire ring on, it was flat ground, which was totally odd for the area. And there was a little creek that someone had stuck, stuck like a PVC pipe in that was shooting out water so we could get water. So it was like, I don't know, God or elk gods or what, but we walked upon this and thank God we found it because we were dead. We could get water. We didn't start a campfire because I thought in the morning we'd have the thermals right and we'd work our way back up to that elk. So that was the plan. And um, in the morning when we woke up, there was no elk. Uh, well, at least he wouldn't call back. Um, but oddly enough, also in the stream, which was in the middle of nowhere, there was two cans of Coors Banquet beer. <laughs> <laughs> it was the oddest thing. Like, And um, my uncle looked at me. He's like, oh, we should drink those. And I said, if we shoot an elk, we'll drink them. Otherwise, we're going to leave a note. Don't drink unless shoot an elk. Um, and so we didn't. We left the cans, and they're still in the stream today. Um, but it was odd. Like, who would have carried two beers up into the middle of the mountain? You know, yeah. why would you carry the weight? <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe they were somebody's uh, celebratory beers for when they killed an elk, and they're leaving it for the next person that comes up there. And it looks like it just keeps getting passed down and passed down. <laughs> yeah, Um so we worked our, we, we ended up putting base camp there. Um, that was day one. Day, day two, we woke up, tried to use the thermos, tried to call that elk. Uh, he was about a quarter mile away. We walked back, worked that ravine real hard. If I would have known what I knew at the end of the hunting trip, then we probably would have gotten that elk. Um, because what we learned at the end of the hunt, the whole, I don't know if this was, this was pretty common throughout the elk world that the people that I know that were elk hunting, the, the, we had really hot temperatures. We had the full moon. Most of the breeding was happening during the, during the night. And a lot of the bugling, they were, they'd shut up really early in the morning. And, um, but if you call called softly, um, they'd come in quietly. I know two people that, called in elk that way it's a really difficult way to hunt because you it's like a needle in a haystack but they would just work real slow and they would call softly and both shot bulls that never bugled coming in so maybe if we would have done that we could have could have worked that bull a little better um that day we actually went about two miles and maybe four thousand feet in elevation um and we ended up walking upon a six by seven that somebody had wounded and we found by the smell of it rotting. Um, and I didn't know you could take the antlers. Apparently you can't. Everyone yelled at me after I took pictures and met many people on this trip. And they all said, did you take the antlers? I'm like, no, I didn't take the antlers. I thought I didn't know the rules. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, would you have to put your tag on that potentially? I uh, know. Well, you know what, you, you know, you're talking to other hunters in the woods. A lot of times they don't even know the rules, but right, um, right. they said, if you have a picture of it dead and you take the antlers, then you can take the antlers. Apparently, gotcha. like if you take a picture of where you found it, I'm, 
I have no idea. I had no want to carry. I mean, this was a monster bull, and to carry the antlers out of there, it it would have been a trip, right? right. So I would. I didn't even want to do it because it would have been hard. We were in some rough, steep territory. The reason why I picked the territory was because I there was no um, there's there was no trails um, like formally marked on it, and it skirted a part of private land that I thought we could um, work that no one else was working. And I had scouted it a week before. So um, we ended up finding two carcasses, one with the antlers and one that they actually killed the elk. So my online scouting was great. It was just about a week early. And apparently there was, oh, and there was um, the bull that we um, bugled the day before. And at the end of the trip, I had met people at a different unit and I sent them over there and they ended up calling in uh, Raghorn in a spike. So it was a was a good area. It just didn't always work for everyone. Yeah. Well, elk hunting is elk hunting's tough. They're so finicky, right? Whether it's from pressure, whether it's from other bulls, um, basically the competition for breeding rights, getting beat up by other bulls, so on and so forth, making them silent or potentially getting pushed off the mountain, they can be there one day and then they can be there. They cannot be there the next. And it is almost like a crapshoot kind of what you're leaning towards, whether they're going to be there one week or not. And like you said, it sounds like you just missed it by a couple days. Yeah, it, it was absolutely that. And it was that in, in all three different units, we hunted 50, 53, 65, 68, and 85. Um, met some amazing people. That's one thing I never expected in this trip. I mean, we'd meet people on the mountain in the middle of nowhere and just talk for an hour. You know, we both wanted to get hunting, but we both had stories and we both helped each other. Um, I only ran in, I probably met 35, 36 people in the trip, and I only met one disgruntled um resident that wasn't happy that we were there but um other than that everyone was super helpful everyone was sharing onyx points and saying you know you you can usually tell if they're kind of joking with you or giving you bad information i don't think anyone gave me bad information um i'd share with them they'd share with me um it was that was the best thing about the entire experience was the people i met out there i met people from wisconsin that were out there ace helicopters i met people from colorado i met pennsylvania california i mean literally it was an awesome experience on on just meeting people that are hunting and i'll probably not, they're all in my phone we've all talked since we're all going to meet back up or try to share information next year so um yeah that i mean that was an unexpected thing that was probably one of the best things that happened in the trip that's super cool because a lot of times you hear the horror stories of running into other hunters and we're, we're all in the same game together very seldomly do you hear like the good side of things and, and i honestly think that you really run into the better cases more often than you run into those bad cases wouldn't you agree oh 100 i mean we put i mean i'm not i'm not the guy you're gonna expect to see on the mountain like i said i'm 250 510 round right and i put on 62 miles and eighteen thousand in elevation when you're doing that, it's kind of like you're in the fight, 
and those other guys can respect that, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, they're not, it's not like you're sitting on a road glass and shooting from your car window, right? So they, I think there's just a level of respect when you're all in the fight. I mean, if you're in shape, not in shape, you're all dying. It's not, it's not an easy hunt. I mean, the way we did it wasn't easy. Maybe, maybe we did it all wrong, but <laughs> it's not an easy. And um, I think everyone out there just, you know, you kind of have a bond in that. Like you're, you're in the fight. Yeah, no, for sure. So let's kind of talk about lessons learned and the trials and tribulations. So let's use this as kind of a teaching moment of some of the stuff that you went through, what you would do differently, what you think you did correctly, uh, what what you would change for next season, uh, that whole deal. Okay, yeah. Um, one, I would train harder you always say this um i used to do half iron mans i would train harder and more specific to start off with um i i'm a flatlander in wisconsin like we think we have mountains or hills and they're nothing right they're, they're literally nothing right and so you know and and i also so i would i would hike more here um and I would hike using the exact gear, and I will for always now, that I use out there. Um, like trekking poles. Here, trekking poles are silly because you think they're silly, but I mean, out there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hike a foot without a trekking pole. Um, and I never used a trekking pole in my life. You know, I thought they were for skiing. So um, I would, and I also would upgrade my trekking poles. I would get nicer ones. I. Uh, I went with like an $80 pair and I think trekking poles next to your sleeping pad and your sleeping bag are probably your third most important thing next, you know, and water, you know, for a guy, my weight, right? Because you're always needing, you're always using it as a third hand, um, on the mountain. Um, but that's one thing I would do. I would train earlier and I train. What and I would train, Let me ahead. interrupt you real quick, please. Yeah. Cause, uh, I think you hit a good point there. What were the issues that you had with your trekking poles? Well, I one time, I mean, so you're using trekking poles to go up, you're going down, you're going sideways. You know, you're using them to cross creeks, like putting them out and kind of use them as like a, like two things to hold as you swing your legs through, so you don't get soaking wet. I mean, I I just bought, um, and I don't mind sharing it. I have the black diamond uh, right here, uh, black diamond. They're all aluminum. You know, they're a $100 pair. Um, well, two things happen, right? So you have the little plungy thing at the bottom that keeps it from going through too, um, too much dirt or soft dirt or snow. And, and so that thing does two things, though. The other thing it does is it catches on everything as you're going through brush. So then your arms are always getting pulled behind you. So I was constantly taking those on and off. And I know the more expensive ones, it's, that process could be easier than what I had to go through. The other thing is um, mine are heavy. They're aluminum, right? You can get like, I think they're called sissy sticks and you can get different ones that are a lot lighter. I was looking them up already um, and stronger. Um, and so I'm gonna do both. I'm, I'm going to jump up to whatever it takes because one of mine bent. What happened was it kind of stuck 
it kind of stuck in the ground at a downhill mm-hmm. and I couldn't pull it out and my hand is stuck to it, right? So I ended up landing like pirouetting myself on it with a 60 pound pack and just ended up bowing it, you know, and I, I slowly bent it back, it didn't break, but then I had to shorten it to give it strength and so then I had a short pull for the rest of the time. Um, I'm just gonna make sure my trekking poles are one of the things I put the most effort and money into and figuring out because also I was holding them wrong. My uncle, who didn't ever been in the mountains before, he had watched so many YouTube videos. He's like, hey, you're holding that wrong. And once I learned to hold it right and put your hand in the straps right, it made a big difference too. So I guess that's another thing. Like learn your equipment, learn how to use it right and practice with it like like it's the real deal. I mean, I I was shooting for a 40-pound pack. But by the time you add the little things that you don't think about and you have your Badlands vinyl case on and all that weight, I was pushing 62 pounds. Well, that's really too much. So at the end of the trip, I ditched my tent and was just using my blue tarp that I was using as a bottom cover for my tent and trekking poles and I made my own tent because I just, I needed to lose three, any ounces I could lose, I needed to lose. So, I mean, we were cutting way back. We were measuring out water, too, water sources. Um, in Colorado, I don't know about anywhere else, um, you can't really trust the maps. I mean, you they do their best, but if it's a dry season and there's no water, you need water, right? right. You, need, you need water, and you'd get to the, you'd hike three miles and maybe use a liter and a half and you, you, there's supposed to be a stream there. Well, the stream is 800 feet down where it's where you can actually get water from it. Well, you wanna hike 800 feet down and then hike 800 feet back? No, I mean, it's so I would plan my routes better um, and, you know, water's heavy. So it's like, do you, do you wanna fill up with three to four liters on your, you know, three in your back and then carry one? Or do you wanna risk not having water? I mean, let me ask you this well, about the water too. So sure. when you did your e-scouting, were you basing your camps off of, uh, assumed water for that location? And then did you potentially call anybody to see what the weather conditions were like to know if you would have to potentially drop an elevation to be able to find water? Um, the answer is no and no um what i did was i knew someone had told me on a on a blog that dashed lines were like iffy water and solid lines were like good water Mm -hmm. and that's technically true unless it's a drought year (laughs) um and then i learned like when i got my license i was talking to them about water i was kind of in the back of my head worried about water and um the woman that was helping me and there was a game warden next to him when I bought the license in Montos or Mentos or whatever that town is, they said, you know, I can't promise you water, even anything higher than like 8,500 feet. Well, all of my hunting locations were higher than 8,500 feet. So I was instantly worried that. So I guess we, we would pack, some instances we packed way too much water because we found water. In some instances we had to cut short because we couldn't find water and it didn't look good. 
I guess that's part of being out there and learning your area. You know, we now now if I went back to that same area, I'd know what streams I could count on and which ones I wouldn't. Right. Um, but I would say that you water to me, unless you know of a better way or other people do, it's um, it's kind of hit and miss depending on the mountain. You know, we were always on north facing slopes, so you would think more likely to have water. Um, and that's something I learned too, is north facing slopes in Colorado doesn't matter. I would say that it's 60-40 on mattering. Because uh, the guys that shot elk on ours were on south facing slopes that were close to our camp. Um, and they were chasing elk for four days. You know, they, they, they were on fresh sign at least. What did the what did the timber look like on the north slopes compared to the south slopes? Was it relatively the same, or yes? Well, okay. it was it was instead of pines, it would be aspens, and the leaves still had the aspens still had leaves on for a majority of the time. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, now, did you have a did you have a drop in uh, temperature as well? See, I thought the Aspens were way hotter than, obviously the south side's gonna be hotter than the north side, but, um, so I didn't, I felt like the Aspens would be too hot to hold out. I honestly did. Mm -hmm. And everything you read is like, hunt the north face, hunt the north face, hunt the north face. Well, I don't know how long it took me of hunting the north face and not having any fresh sign to believe the guys next to us that are like, no, we're going up there. We see fresh droppings and we have, you know, we, we, we've, um, you know, we feel like we've heard elk, we've pushed elk and there was other people that taught us to slow, to quiet, like just work slow and do the call pal. And they ended up shooting two bulls on south facing slopes. So, um, I don't, so I'm not saying the north slopes thing doesn't matter, but I'm saying if you don't have elk where you are, and I think we covered this in the first podcast, keep going. Don't use the same theories that you had in your head because it might be off. Maybe it's just a one-year thing. Maybe it was just this year. Maybe maybe it's just the area you're in. But I kept thinking, number one, hunt only North Face. And I, and I think everyone else read that book too because <laughs> I'd meet hunters. South Face had just a couple guys that I knew that that were camped by us and they shot elk and we didn't yeah well that, that i mean there's some validity to that so you're 100 right everything that you read about or hear about is hunt the north side hunt the north side so the reason that those south sides potentially could have been holding elk is because of how much pressure was in the north side and they're just getting pushed over the mountain yeah i i, I honestly I mean, everything you read this year on all blogs and everyone complaining. And I originally, before I went out, was kind of half-hearted, like, gosh, there's so many hunters out. I appreciate, I love the fact there's so many hunters out, but I also, the selfishness in me doesn't like it, you know. But um, there was a lot of hunters, man. And I think one thing that I can, you can learn from it is hunt where the other hunters aren't, right? And I didn't do that. I didn't adjust fast enough. Yeah. So, uh, you're hundred percent right there again, hunt, hunt where the hunters are not. And, uh, 
it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that through a tool like Onyx Maps, you know what I mean? Outside of potentially looking at trailheads, parking lots, things like that, ease of access. But once you get boots on the ground, that's where you make your, your game change. That's where you need to be adaptable, like you were saying. Um, not getting pigeonholed into, right, this is what's my plan and this is what I'm gonna stick with and this is how I'm gonna hunt my entire week or however long you're out there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I went in there with a few, I was re- willing to be mobile, ready. Obviously we hunted a bunch of different units. I had plan B's plan, but every plan B had one common denominator, north facing slopes, right? Little areas I thought I could get into that nobody else thought of. By the way, every area you think you thought of as someone else has, there's at least one guy. Right. For so, sure. <laughs> so that, like in Wisconsin, that's not like it. Like up here, I, I've hunted whitetail in certain areas that are just like certain niches along private property that nobody else thinks they can get into. That doesn't happen out there, man. Everyone is like me. They're all, they're all, the elk hunt in, in general, you have to be a little crazy, mm-hmm. right? So they're, they're a little crazy. And so they've done the same homework I have, you know? So it's almost like you, you outsmart, you outsmarted yourself because everyone was going for those little niche areas on north facing slopes. And I think my biggest mistake is I could have walked in there like a novice, just walked down some trails and just you just hunted and I probably would have been just as well, obviously I would have been just as successful because I didn't get an elk, but I think I would have seen more elk because there were so many hunters in prime like quotations locations that I think the elk got left alone in like the generic normal spots. Yeah, there's there's something to be said about that too. Um I was actually talking to Johnny Wagner about that. It's Backpack hunting has gotten so popular that more and more people are pushing farther and farther and farther back. And the, you're finding these little holes next to the road where you don't have to go in as far. And elk are moving from the backcountry forward to get into those pockets where there's no, there's no pressure or there's a, a little amount of pressure. Um, yeah, you don't Absolutely. always have to go and break your back to, to get on them. Absolutely. I, my next year... And for everyone that's listening, I suggest doing the same thing. I'm going to spend more time thinking about where the pressure is going to come from. I think pressure rather than heat, I mean, water is always going to be a source, but I think, I mean, if you read it, elk will travel six, six miles in a day for water. So, I mean, that's a long area. So I'm going to hunt more I'm going to figure out where I think the pressure is going to come from and I'm going to hunt the opposite. It might be right next to a highway. I have no idea, but it's definitely not going to be. I was the typical backpacker four to six miles back right before you get to the horseback people and between the horseback people and me and the other teams of people that were out there, we pushed the elk back towards the trailheads. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you we did. And um, and we also, with the amount of pressure out there, I think the bugling was way down. I know it, the OT unit I was in, everyone was saying there's just not bugling. They're not bugling yet. They're just not, a, they, I mean, you have to be on top of them before you get a bugle. You know, when I've hunted Idaho before, man, you'd get on a, you'd get on a calling point in a ravine and you'd call. And the hardest thing was just figuring out which elk you could get to without killing yourself. In Colorado, we would have killed ourselves for an elk, for a bugle. You know, so that's the, the other thing there is, I think, 
what I learned is OTC is probably not what it, it still can be great and it still can be a great experience. You just have to change up your hunting tactics a little bit. So what else do you think outside of thinking outside the box and looking at overlooked areas, do you think that you might've missed out on and, and you would change? Well, I, I would definitely, I would definitely do kind of what we're talking about where I'd have less, I, I do less pack-ins. We met a guy up in uh, unit 65 that we met way back in there and we had to do a base camp too to get where he did it in one day. And he had a 15 pound pack and he just got up early and worked and, and worked and hiked it like at three o'clock in the morning. You know, it took us two days to get where he got in like six hours because we had 50 pound packs, 60 pound packs. And he was just coming in every day, every day. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know that I could get to that fitness level, but I could get to that fitness level pretty close. I'm not going to do the back hunt, backpack hunting and unless I can identify that the, there's elk there, right? Because I thought the idea was hike in, find a good area, and then hike and then and then be there for two, three days and then hunt around it and then come back. Well, that doesn't it don't it didn't work for us and it didn't work for a crap load of other people thinking the same thing. The guy that could move the fastest and the most, the lightest, and cover the most territory won. And in, in all the trailheads I went to, if anyone shot elk, it was that kind of guy. It was not my kind of guy where we bought the nice packs and we bought all the food. And this guy would go back to his base at the trailhead every night. But you got to be willing to get up at 3.30 in the morning so you have the th be willing to come back in the dark. So it's a different way of hunting. But he saw a lot more elk than anyone else. And that was kind of the theme throughout. Um, the guy who could move the most won. You know, in, in Idaho, you can a lot of times you can use, and we were hunting wilderness areas too, mostly. So no one had four wheelers. But in Idaho, we had four wheelers and we'd cover, I'd never thought of it, but we cover 35 miles in a day. And we'd, we'd hike in, you know, half a mile, call off of a ravine and wait for the replies. Well, here you're hiking. So, I mean, it takes you two hours to hike past where your bugle would cover. So it's something I'm going to think about for sure is changing up my whole idea of OTC hunting in Colorado. And, oh, by, by the way, today is or tomorrow is the last day to put in for Montana for a preference point. Good, good uh, looking out. Very good looking out. So but for I don't think our listeners Montana. that are potentially considering Montana. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think they won't hear this until that, until after. But um, one thing about, I'm in that go hunt insider. They send you these emails like the day before, like, Hey, did you put in for this? Did you put in for this? Put in for this. I suggest jumping on that thing because I think you're going to find that you're going to want to hunt non-OTC. Um, OTC is fine, but I think eventually we're going to you're going to want to hunt a little bit better experience, and having a couple preference points in a couple states will help that. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things I want to talk about here, real quick, is you mentioned speed, and I think that is something that is drastically overlooked. And there's two ways to go about it. So you can be the type of hunter 
that is very, very physically fit and is able to get in the backcountry and then basically move around all over the mountain, work out of your campsite and cover a lot of ground farther away. Or you could potentially be the type of hunter that, like you mentioned, that dude's basically working out of his truck, going in a couple miles, finding them, maybe hunting them that evening and just running a light day pack. And once he's on them, go back to the truck that evening and then go in and set up camp. And then at that point, like, think about it. Would you have been able to hit a lot more places if you kind of had that run and gun style where you were only going in three miles at a shot? Are they here? Nope. All right. On to the next spot. On to the next spot. On to the next spot. Till you found them. Hundred percent. And um, I don't think I'll ever be that guy that's mountain tough. Like those guys are like wirely monkeys, man. When you meet them out there, you can tell like they have the skinny face, and they're 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 gonna cover. You know, I had a guy cover fifteen miles in a day. I don't know how he did it, and I saw his onyx. He did it. It's crazy. That's not going to be me ever. I'm going to, I'm going to have to get, like you're saying, I'm going to have to get more sniperish, right? I'm going to have to look at areas. Like I said, that I think the elk are going to get pushed to jump in there, you know, go in light with my super day pack, go in, check if the, you know, get, see if I can get a bugle, see if I can get fresh signs. And then, um, you know, and then, hunt and then get back and then maybe the next day bring in my and put a b2 in there but um i think that's that's how i'm gonna attack it next year for sure just like you're saying i think you got to be super mobile um even my base camp i'm gonna cut way down my base camp one i'm not gonna carry anything heavy in that thing i'm not gonna it's gonna be i could pack it up in 40 you know 30 to 40 minutes now instead of two hours I think being able to be able to jump OTC units um, and find out where the pressure is, is important. The, towards the end of the trip, we figured it out and um, we just ran out of steam. Mm-hmm. But next year, next year, we'll, we have, we've learned a lot, but base, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my base camp easier to move and I'm, I'm going to make my packs way lighter and I'm going to do a lot of one day in and outs until I find like really fresh sign. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would recommend. That's kind of what, that's kind of the strategy that I've used in the past hunting elk is just run and gun, just run and gun until you, you get on them because they're either there or they're not. And hoping that they move into the area that you're in, to me, honestly, isn't a strategy and you got to hope that that happens in potentially however amount of time that you have allotted on your hunt. That's not really stacking the odds in your favor. No, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, um, and when I say fresh sign, I don't mean, I mean, fresh sign. Exactly. Because you can get real tricked up in your mind saying, Oh, there's elk here. Cause you see, some you know you see some droppings or something but if it's not green and slimy it's not fresh and if it's and if that popple tree looks ripped down and the leaves are dead already it's not that fresh it's you know a week old like a week i didn't realize with elk they move so much Mm -hmm. right so like 
even three-day-old sign is really old sign. You need to be on, like, if an elk moved and you have fresh sign, it could still be three miles from where you are. <laughs> like, if you have fresh sign this morning, like, it was there this morning, it could be three to six miles away from where you are right now. So if you found that the day before, it could be, you know, eight or 12. So it's like, learning what fresh sign in is probably... You, I, we could probably have a webinar just on fresh sign because I didn't know it, but we're right in also the area of, of the time where elk eat start eating too dry of foods and then they go into um, like deer pellets instead of those long um, half dollar looking things. They turn into like just regular pellets just bigger than mule deer. I didn't know that. Right. So um, I thought they always had like the elongated big huge poop but they don't so i mean clearly your first year is or the first year in an area and learning elk and um i had done it in the past but never to this ex never to this extreme or to i tried i mean super hard i tried doing everything you could but you're still going to learn so much more talking to people number one having boots on the ground number two and um now the key is just adapting what I learned and for next year. I want to rewind here real quick. And you were talking about your training because I think this is really important. And it's kind of like you said, everybody, once they go out there, the first thing they say when they get back is, well, I wish I would have trained harder. Like, I, I don't think I've ever heard a person ever say, yeah, my training was definitely good enough. And you were talking about training with actual gear that you're going with, loading up your pack to the, the same amount of weight, having it organized in your back, in your bag, so that you have that same feeling on your back when you're out hiking, walking around. What are some other ways you think that you could have better prepared fitness-wise for this trip? Well, I mean... Fitness wise, like physical health wise, there's two things out there on the mountain you're going to struggle, right? You're going to, you know, attitude is everything, right? It's, you're going to, you're going to second guess yourself. If you're the leader, like I was like, and you plan this and, and you, and you found the spots and you're, you're going to second guess everything until you hear a bugle. So physically for so mentally you got to go in there and i did that was one thing i was good with was my attitude like i knew it just took one and we just keep we we have to learn every day we learn from what we did what we think we did right and what we think we did wrong and we adapted to the following day's decisions but so mentally you got to go in there expecting a battle right and i i'm i'm pretty good with my mental um, focus and my positivity and there was times I got down and that's a good reason to have a second guy with you because then when he when you're down he's building you up but so I would go one that's one thing I would do just a pro tip 2055 go with somebody that you know can be in a battle with you if you're going with just two people and they you know has a strong mental attitude because if you both quit on the same day or both want to give up on the same day it's real easy on the mountain but for physically meant for physical fitness, I would, I mean, I think I started really training in June and it's difficult to train for out West 
in the Midwest and probably out East because it's hot, right? So it's 90 degrees, 95 degrees. We got our Elgus gear on. You know it's not going to be that hot out in Colorado, although it kind of was this year. Um, so you try to justify in your head, well, it's so hot, I can't wear that. I can't put 50 pounds in that pack. I'm just going to put 30 because there's no way it's going to be this hot out west. Well, I wish I would have just put it on there. I wish I would have trained. And I should have known this because I've done Ironmans, half Ironmans. You, you should train harder than you expect it to be because then you can – you. It'll help your mental attitude for one, and two, you're gonna you're gonna be able to go into that next year that maybe you couldn't have before, you know. And that's I, so. I guess that would be my tip. I would train harder if you're gonna take this serious, and all of us are, because it's gonna be a you know twenty five hundred dollar expense when you're done at least. I would train harder than you think it's gonna be out there. And if you can't get the a mountain, I don't care if the hill is. 100 feet long, I would train just on that hill. You know, like um, that famous receiver with the 49ers, Jerry Rice, used to do that sand hill, man. I would do things like that. I would get crazy and just do hills. Down the hill, up the hill. Down the hill, up the hill. I'd find a hill or stairs. I'd find stairs and I'd just do them. I don't think you'd do yourself any favors by walking flat because I don't know one flat spot in Colorado that I was hunting. It was very rare. And then the other thing I would do, and everyone I talked to, um, we talked boots. I mean, those Canatrek boots I had saved my life, man. They, they were like a ski boot. They were comfy. They were dry. They were amazing. And my uncle didn't have them. He had hiking boots that were recommended by a lot of elk hunters. I don't know who, what, they, what area they hunt, but it must not be very steep and it must not be very many streams um, because it was a tough. My uncle would have to take his boots off, put them back on with sweaty socks and all that to get across rivers. And I could just cross them with my Kenetrex. I could go through shale sides. I could go through mud. I could go through sand. I mean, I could just side hill by cutting into the side of hedges and my ankle would... Um, that goes along with physical fitness, training the boots and the, the equipment you're going to wear, you know, with them up with with your hiking sticks. Um, have those trekking poles, whatever they're called, sissy sticks. Uh, they're not sissy to me. And I would have them and I would train with them because they are an integral part of letting you go down the hill easier and going up the hill easier. Um, I would train with a full water pack. Um, cause you think you're going to cut water out there until you can't, and then you're going to have water, you know, um, I would train. One thing I never did was I never attached the bow to the back of my brand new MRK pack. Well, my bow is heavy. It's not mm -hmm. normally heavy, but you put it eight inches, 12 inches behind on your back with a full pack. It's even exponentially heavier now pulling you backwards. Mm -hmm. And another thing for bow hunters is I would get a quiver guard. My quiver was, I mean, my arrows kept getting plunged out of my thing every time we'd go through any brush and you are going to go through a lot of brush. So I lost one, you know, with the broadhead and arrow, I lost 35, $40. I lost an arrow on the mountain. It's not a big deal, but it's, you know, it sucks when you're, 
when you're going, you're like, oh crap, I lost an arrow. You know, so that's another thing. Put the bow on the back of your pack. But I, I'm going to get a whole different quiver system now. Um, put the water in the side pouches. Fill those little cubby holes in the front of your pack. You know, I had the MRK pack with the miscellaneous pouches on the side. You know, put your lighter in there. Put your um, wind direction in there. Put your bino case on. Put your multi-tool on. Put your knives in there. It adds up. And um, and I would train. And I would train. I don't think you need to go crazy, but I would do three days a week. And I would do it for two hours each time. Because I feel like on the mountain, after two hours, you, you take a break, no matter what. And um, and I don't know too many people that have more than two hours to give training at, you know, three days a week that have lives. But maybe they do. God bless you. But... If you could give two hours, solid two hours, climbing stairs and hills and using your stuff, I think you'd be good to go. How did your, so you, you mentioned your boots there and, um, I actually, it's funny. I just got done doing a pretty long March with, uh, 35 pounds on my back and some of the guys that we've done it with, or I did it with, uh, I would say their feet weren't conditioned for the uh the terrain how were your feet conditioned for the terrain did you get blisters were your feet getting extremely fatigued uh did your feet end up getting tougher by like day eight like how did that go that's an interesting question you had and i got so lucky for it i got so lucky so i read um somewhere about these darn tough socks mm -hmm. And I had the Kenetrek boots already for a year, and I loved them. And I, I was not worried about them one bit. I was 100% not worried about them. Oh, and by the way, Kenetrek boots on flat ground suck. So if you're going to compare them, like you're going to do a hike just on flat ground with 30 pounds on your back, they're not they're not your game, right? That's No, don't do Kenetrek boots. They're meant for hiking in mountains. I learned that, too. I, when I was practicing here, I was you know, slightly worried about my boots because I kept you know, just hiking on hard packed trails and um, you kind of got shin splints almost. And I was like, I re and then I then I emailed them and researched it. You got to get in the mountains with them. And it was 100% true. But saying what you're saying, I, I thought to myself, what should I do? Walk around outside barefoot or because my feet are like baby bottoms. I was like, I have a four month old. And I don't know what's softer, my feet or his butt. And I was like, man, I'm so worried about this. So I, I researched it. You know, you do the YouTube thing, whatever. And um, I, I just um, I had had the smart wool socks and I had Kenetrek socks, which I don't know who actually makes them, but I'm sneaky to feeling it's darn tough. But the track socks weren't as good as the darn... I used three pairs of socks for 15 days. They never stunk. I never got one blister. 62 miles for someone 250 pounds. Up a mountain, 18,000 feet in elevation changes I've done. Never one blister. No Luca tape. I bought Luca tape and I didn't even need it. We, my, I, never got, I never got a blister. But you did have... One pro tip 2099 is the second you feel your boots loosen up or you feel like a, a weird burr or like a sock rolled up, you got to fix it. I don't care if you take your whole pack off. 
you got to fix it because you do not want a loose boot. You do not want a little burr. You do not want a sock rolled up in there. But I'm telling you, I did the midweight darn tough socks, bud. I went into it thinking I'm going to need Luke to take like crazy because my feet are like a baby's bottom. I had been training too, so I I would wear like gym shoes, and that was like um, it kind of wore off my calluses. So I was super worried about it. But honestly, the Kenetrek boot with the darn tough socks, and I'd switch out every night. I'd put on fresh socks before I went to bed because it was cold. I'd wear socks to bed, and those socks would be warm when I put them in the boots in the morning. And that's that was my trick. And so um, I'd set my boots out in the um, area of my tent where I didn't think they could get any moisture. And um, generally they were bone dry in the morning and my feet were ready to go because I had fresh socks on. And then I'd let my socks dry tied to my pack as I walked every night or all day long. And I don't know if it was the merino wool, but they didn't stink. They didn't, they didn't get crusty. They didn't do anything. I thought I'd have to wash them in streams and stuff. Never did. Yeah, when you get days, good quality socks, man, that's like, that's a lifesaver. I um, also had the new Merino wool um, underwear from Badlands. Mm-hmm. And um, I had six pairs of those for 15 days and never had, never had chafing. I brought Desitin, you know, I brought all this stuff that at base camp I had it um, that I thought was going to have to worry about chafing and powder and all that. Those underwear and those socks saved the fat man a lot of pain. <laughs> so Yeah, we've all been there. It's yeah. not a good feeling. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I was prepared for the pain, like, with stuff. Never needed it. Didn't stink either. Not, I thought I would reek. And I would ask my uncle. I mean, he could have maybe lied to me. But, I mean, I used all Badlands gear the entire time. I, I didn't use anything non-Badlands, and I, the the layers went nice. Um, I, the layering would be impossible. If I would have had Badlands gear, I would have been serious trouble. If I would have had anything cotton, um, you know, I can go through the whole list of clothing, but everything I had from Badlands worked really good. There's some changes I'd make to the MRK pack as far as I'd put clips in in some places where you could take the pack back a little faster, but still it worked I'd still give it an A, but, uh, yeah. So physical preparedness, I would train harder than I thought it would be out there. I would, I would, I would do that. Um, and I will do that next time. And if you can't, you can't, it's okay. You know, you're going to have to work a little smarter than harder. Um, but I'm going to hopefully go a little bit smarter and a little harder next time. What is something that you brought that you won't be bringing next year? <laughs> Expectations. <laughs> <laughs> um, everything you literally expect is either bigger or not a big deal than you thought. <laughs> I mean, everything from the food. I mean, I brought three days of food, um, peak refuel. I'm actually a dealer of it. Uh, which is phenomenal food. Um, I brought three packs for every meal or for every day. Heck, you don't feel like eating one pack a day. Never mind three. Uh, I lost 21 pounds on that trip, um, which is amazing. I, I fit in 
all my clothes are a little big right now, but I'm sure I'll fill it back out by Christmas. Um, but um, food, you don't need near as enough as you think. Like, because the few days that you're traveling, like to a new unit, you're so dying to get real food that you don't, so you don't use food that day. You go out, right? You stop at a gas station and eat the heck out of cheese curds and roast pizza um, or something. So I would, I'm going to carry half as much food, literally half as much food and half as much food on the mountain too. I'm going to invest more in those um, drinks you put in water that have calories in them because it's easier to digest. I feel like you're working so hard that eating like a heavy meal is just like the most, that's something you just don't want to do. Um, I, so I'm going to have, I'm going to have less, I'm going to have less gear at base camp. Like I'm not bringing all my camping supplies that I bring with the whole family. Right. Um, I'm going to bring less gear on my B2 pack. If I, if I do that, um, what else would I not do? Um, I, I was fully prepared with the Badlands gear. I never used the rain pants, but I, I'm glad I had them in case I would have needed them. Um, I don't need a tent. Like I'm going TP tent next year. I'm just, that's all you need. Yeah. Everyone, I thought, gosh, man, you need that, that bottom bar around your tent and you know, that footprint and all this fly rain fly. You do not. In Colorado, if it rained enough for you to need your rain fly, it'd be a miracle. You'd be praying for it. <laughs> it didn't rain one day in 15 days. I mean, a couple drops once in a while. So um, you don't have to prepare for rain. Um, so I'm going TP tent next year to cut the weight. Um, that's about it. I'm going to definitely probably invest in a new bow. I think there's a big difference between whitetail bows and elk bows as far as carbon fiber. I have a white bow that's a couple years old. I think I'm going to sell it and upgrade to something a little lighter. Um, I didn't even get to take half my video equipment that I wanted to take because it was so heavy. Mm-hmm. But I think next year when I do it, I was intimidated by the weight because I I thought you'd need all this battery and all this for all the hours of filming. Elk hunting is like 10 hours of boring hiking and probably five minutes of excitement. So I could probably do an elk hunt with like 200, 200 minutes 120 minutes maybe of battery and, and and equipment i don't know you could probably tell me more about that than, than me but uh we ended handy cammed it and uh fo- and did phone video um so i i think next year i won't be as intimidated with the video equipment um and i'll i don't feel like i need as many many batteries and all that power banks and power chargers because I don't think you're going to want a video every second of every part of it. I think you're going to hit the high points and do some interviews. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit different. I think videotaping elk hunts or hiking, a, you know, spot and stalk or elk hunts than it is whitetail. You know, I can edit, I can just leave it run kind of, 
on, on a deer stand or a duck blind and then edit it out, right? Because you're sitting there, you have the batteries, it doesn't matter, right? But batteries are heavy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, oh, one thing, pro tip 2099999 is uh, Tylenol PM or Advil PM, man. Oh, that was a lifesaver. Totally helps you go to sleep and muscles, everything relax overnight. I suggest it. Consult your doctor, but I can, I suggest it. Did you have any issues with the uh, elevation and did you do anything to prepare for the elevation? Well, I went out there five days early with my daughter as like a family camping trip, dad bonding time. So I, that I kind of cheated the system, but I knew I would need to. Um, my uncle threw, flew in from Texas and by the time we, so we, he flew in, I picked him up at Denver, drove to camp. We set up a new base camp. By the time we had set up base camp and he had slept through it the next day, he was good to go. I don't know if that, that applies to everyone, but yeah. I can tell you when we, we, we hunted some like 11, five, some 12,000 foot stuff. It was a whole different ball game for me. Um, even though I was acclimated to that 95 all day long. And when we started to get to like 11, five, 12, 12, two, I don't know if it was just mental, but it, I was struggling and elk were up. I know there was some up there. Um, but, uh, so I, I kind of cheated the system. So I, I don't really want to comment on it cause I went out so early, but I would say based on my uncle, he set up base camp at 95 with me. By the time he woke up in the morning, he was good to go. It affects everybody differently. Like I don't get, um, altitude sickness at all for the most part that I know of in, in any of my experiences, but I've been around people that it really, really affects them and like kind of doing what you do, you did taking that extra day or two to get acclimated has really, really helped them. Oh, I'm sure. And I found that I don't know if it was altitude sickness or just lack of water. You don't want, I don't, maybe it's just cause I was out of shape more than I thought, but you don't want to drink or eat when you're going, man. And I don't, so I might've had a little altitude sickness cause I had a headache a couple different times, but I think it was more of dehydration and nutrition than it was altitude, but it could be a combination of them all. I would say as a, another pro tip is force yourself to eat and bring meals that you will eat no matter if you don't, you're not hungry or not. Um, and I started using, um, some crystal light packets that I grabbed at a gas station when we were in between units and my water. And it made me want to drink water a lot more. Um, cause you're just drinking so much water. I just wanted some flavor, you know, and if I could gain some calories in my water, I was, so I don't know if, if that's, it's just me or other people, but you know, 15 days of water was just wearing me out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just uh, eventually put some packets of some powdered stuff in there. And I know that mountain, there's a couple different brands, but I've, I'll probably invest in more of eating my meals for powder and water and drinking them than eating them. And when I'm doing that, save on weight, save on time. Cause you know, you're bringing the jet oil and you're bringing all that. If I could just throw a packet of water in my bottle, my Nalgene and shake it up, I'm loving life. I'm McDonald's and then I call it loving it. I'm loving it. Well, here's the other thing too, is 
and I know not a lot of people think about this, but when you're putting together your food, how many people are actually calorie counting? So let's say that you either make your food or you're buying your food and you actually look at the amount of calories that go into it. Is it worth the amount of time that it takes to make that food and then eat that food? And does it taste good enough that you're going to want to eat more of that, uh, for whatever amount of caloric intake you're getting. So hundred, hundred percent. I, I figured that out about day three. <laughs> mm. I was like, man, I really love the chicken teriyaki on the refuel, but it's like 540 calories. And then I look at the, um, uh, beef stroganoff, which is 14 or 1100 calories. I didn't mind the beef stroganoff with mushrooms. I'm like, I'm not wasting my time with that chicken teriyaki anymore. You know, um, it tastes really good, but I, I don't care at this point. Like I'll, I'll eat a calorie bar or whatever the heck you give me just to get it over with. Exactly. But, um, yeah, I would say one of my biggest failures was under nutrition out there. I mean, I lost way too much weight. I, I could feel myself bonking cause I've done 10 K's before and stuff. And when I was this big too, 250 pounds, I was in like the Clydesdale class. And, um, I could feel myself bonking out there and, um, I know it was because of nutrition. So uh, I'm also looking at that mountain ops for nutrition, like on the mountain, you know, vitamins. I mean, I, I'm positive. I was negative on a lot of stuff. I mean, you're pushing your body like insane and I wasn't refueling it as good as I could have. So I'll, I'll definitely look at nutrition next time. Right. Yeah. So I like, here's, here's a prime. What do you think, what do you think your caloric burn was per day? If you had a guesstimate? Yeah. I don't even know. Maybe five, maybe four or 5,000 calories. Yeah. And do you think you're getting anywhere close to refilling? No, that? my biggest count was like 2,300 in a day. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I knew it. That's tough. Yeah. I was battling it out there. I mean, I felt like I was on the biggest loser and elk hunting you know it it was not a smart move it was totally not smart i yeah i mean if i learned anything i learned about water and nutrition out there is so much more important than you think maybe not if you're like on a three-day hike a hunt like on a weekender but 15 days in the mountains (laughs) you gotta start thinking like holy man that's 15 days like four thousand to five thousand calories a day i'm burning and my i wasn't taking vitamins I mean, I'm eating the, the refuel, but I could barely choke down two of them a day. I had a couple kind bars a day. Really was way behind. That's why I'm going with those powdered stuff next year and just drinking it. You and know? think and about making- how that affects your, your, your mental capacity too. Whether it's like just getting over that next ridge or trying to figure out a game plan on how to set up on elk or, or potentially get to a new area or whatever. Because that was one of the big things that played a role in my uh my hunts is if I'm not getting that caloric intake and I'm burning too much, if I'm burning more than I'm putting in, like my mental capacity goes out the window. Oh, I, yes. And I, I do want to point out there was two point criticals. I would say critical points in, in the hunting. I ha- we had just hiked about 2000 feet in elevation, maybe four miles in. And I wanted to get to this other saddle, but man, it was a killer hike. And I was just like drained and I, and it was like, 
probably five days from the end. So I was 10 days in with no nutrition, not the right nutrition and everything. And it just didn't feel right. Like I was getting kind of dizzy and stuff and I knew I needed the rest. And I knew I was, I was going to pop open my dinner for the night and eat it for lunch. Um, so I sat my pack down and this is no, nothing bad to Badlands at all. This is just Blaze is an idiot. So we knew there was no water up there. So we carried, I had three liters in my back and my reservoir and I had two one liter Nalgene's on the side. So I was carrying a lot of weight just in water. And um, I set my pack down, I didn't put the cap on it and I didn't adjust, I didn't know it, but there was an on off valve on your reservoir on the Badlands packs. And it's just a turning thing that's very supple. If you don't know what's there, you, you don't think about it. Well, I set my pack down on the front of my vinyl case, just out of exhaustion. And because, and there's another thing, my knocks would hit on my backpack when I had my back, when I had my bow tied to my back of my backpack, my knocks would hit the ground first if I set it straight up and down. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't do that. I was risking bending my arrows. So I laid my pack down on the front of it and it ended up being on my vinyl case. And uh, the pressure from my pack pushed out all the water in my three liter reservoir. So at that point, I didn't realize that it had happened. I realized some water had escaped, but I, I, you can't check your reservoir when it's when you're in a full 60 pound pack going up a mountain. So I just assumed some leaked out. I didn't I didn't think I didn't think enough about it. So we get hiked another four or five hundred feet in elevation and we find base camp two. And we're right below the saddle that I think and we had decided we were going to hunt it was a south facing saddle, but I kind of thought maybe the elk got pushed there and it was going to be about another 800 feet in the morning up in elevation to get there. We would have had the thermals right. But that night when I unpacked, I realized that all the water was gone. And my uncle's like, no, like we can, we'll, we'll just, we'll just share my water. We won't eat tonight. We'll, you know, we'll just conserve water. I'm like, I had to start thinking like a survivalist then. And I'm like, there's no way, there's, there's just no way that we can conserve water with the amount of hike we just did and, the, and, and hunt tomorrow. I said, we're gonna wake up in the morning, we'll shoot up a bugle, but we're not going up and we're going down. I just had to make a survival decision then because we had planned this trip to get here and we kinda knew it was the crescendo of the trip because we didn't have it in us anymore. and. I basically at that moment, it was like one of those moments like on the mountain where you're like, you just made a critical error in the success of your hunting trip because all my water, three liters of water was gone. We knew we needed, you know, half a liter to, for, for, for the meals. You know, we had it all planned out, but it, and it would have been more than enough, but now we were three liters short and we went back. I just, if anyone's listening to this conversation, it was a very hard, hard decision to do that because we kind of knew we just had this. Some other hunters had said they had, they had heard bulls up there, and this is a spot where not many hunters had gone. We kind of knew that there was elk up there, but there was no sense in risking my life for an elk. And it doesn't seem that critical, but if you've ever done a long distance 
marathon or anything and you run out of water, you get delirious, right? And you do not want to be delirious on the mountain. And I, maybe I was overprotective of my uncle and I, but I just, I just said, no, we're done. We're not, we're not hunting anymore. Tonight we're sleeping. We'll get up in the morning. We'll hike down. And it was a crusher mentally, but I'm pretty sure today, looking back, it was the right decision. Um, but I just want to implore everyone else that's at that point, like, you don't want to push yourself to the point where you're going to need to push that SOS on your Zolo, right? You, and, and it's so simple to overthink water. You know, I was overthinking nutrients. I shouldn't have. But water is so critical to your thinking and dehydration is nothing to mess around with. You know, at eight, 9,000 feet, five miles from anything. So I, I guess that was, I just wanted to mention that, that that happened to me. One, turn your reservoir off when you set your pack down, especially if it's fully packed because there's a lot of pressure on it. And two, if water ever becomes a concern, you need to about face. I guess, I guess that was just heavy on my heart. No, I think that's extremely important. And you covering that is definitely something that needs to be heard by everybody. I mean, you go three days without water. Um, that's as long as you can go and you can start making stupid decisions very quickly in just a matter of hours due to lack of water that can get you in a, a very sticky situation. I've been there. Yeah, I, I've been there on races on Ironmans, and literally your feet just turn to rocks. Your mind isn't thinking. You, I mean, you easily want to give up, but you're on a mountain. You can't give up. You know, you can really get silly dehydrated. And um, I at least knew that. You know, I didn't pay attention to the food nutrition, nutrition, but I knew that that hunt, that three-day, four-day hunt was over when that water was gone. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just that's part of the game. It is what it is. Just had to make the decision, you yep. know. Yep, exactly. All right, Blaze. Well, we are a little over an hour. Do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, start to hop off here? No, I mean, yeah, I guess I do. I have two things. Um, what, two things that popped up in the trip that I didn't think I thought would be a waste of the time. Um, Two instances for two hours, we ended up going trout fishing on some streams and caught amazing amount of trout. It kind of, like you don't think about it, but when you're in it for 15 days or 10 days, you just need something to take your mind off of it, especially if it's not going well, right? Um, we did it for two hours, two different times, caught a mess of trout, ate some trout, um, was amazing experience. I never caught trout like that in my life. I mean, it was literally like, I don't fish trout, don't fish streams. We put a Panther Martin on a spinning reel. Luckily, we had brought reels with us at base camp, so we went fishing. I would suggest that to anyone, especially if you can feel like you just need a break. Um, the other thing is, if I had to end with one thing, I mean, the relationship that I gained with my uncle that flew in, I didn't, I mean, I see my uncle at Christmas every year. And that's it. And he decided to do this trip with me. He was 62 or 63 years old. The bond that we had, the laughs, the pain, everything we went through, that was worth all of the all of the investment it took to go out there. I mean, we didn't we didn't have a great elk hunting trip. We saw some dead elk. We heard one bugle. We covered area that used to have elk in it. Um, 
But we gained a crazy amount of respect for each other. Also, just like we started this podcast, the people I met out there are A1 top-notch guys. And they're just like you and I. You know, they might be a little shy at the beginning. I always broke the ice because I'm a loud mouth. I'd be like, hey, what are you up to? You know, I'd see them walking past us or we'd know it was a caller and we'd wait for them to catch up to us. And then we'd get a game plan. Hey, I don't want to step on your toes. Where, where do you want to go? And, you know, I said, well, we're here for the experience. We'll go over here. And they'd be like, oh, no, actually, we're leaving today. You should try over here. We haven't tried over here yet. And we think that'll be good. I mean, the every person we met was more help. They got I got more from them than they got from me for sure. And um, I, I had a couple, I'd always have Twix bars on me and I'd throw them a Twix bar, like the little ones. Um, but that was like gold out there. Yeah, that, I mean, always put a smile on someone. And I said, if you have, because they, they say left or right on them now. So uh, my daughter always says, you got to eat two, dad, or you're going to walk in circles. So I would say the same <laughs> joke every time. So, um, but every person you meet out there, if you're willing to put your hand out to them, I only met one out of 30 that was rude. And the ones that I met, I'll probably be friends with them for life, especially if I can, they're, they're just like, next time come stay at my cabin. We, you know, for the, you know, the, when you first get out here, or why don't you stop back here at my house when you come? Or, you know, if you shoot anything, let us know, inreach us or Zolo us, we'll come out and help you pack it out. You know, every single person I met, next year I'm probably gonna go out with some guys from Wisconsin that I met at least go into the same units in the beginning. That was a game changer for me because everything you hear online is anti non-resident, anti too many hunters, you know, are not anti too many hunters. You know, there's no elk left. Everything is gloom and doom. And yes, it was tough hunting, but man, I, I'd pay two grand for the relationships that I gained. I mean, they, they made the trip. I mean, people would stop at our camp when we had the trout. Um, they'd stop and eat Twix bars. Oh, the other thing I would tell you guys, all you tough men out there like me, if you bring beer or liquor out there, you're silly because <laughs> you do not need it for one. And the second thing is, is I don't know how you would do any of it with a hangover of any sort whatsoever. So if you think you're bringing a 30 pack out there and drinking it, I, I will put a hundred bucks on it. You don't drink that 30 pack um, because it's, it's just not something you're even thinking about when you're out there. I mean, yes, when we were on top of that mountain to see the two beers in the stream, that would have been cool to shoot an elk. And maybe if you had a little bottle of the, like, carry whiskeys when you shot something and passed around, that'd be cool. But literally, it's not like deer camp. You know, you're not, you're not like, come back, have a couple beers and some bacon, you know. Right. Um, and so that was the things, man. I, I, I met a lot of awesome people. The relationship, I get, the confidence I gained in myself to know that you can still do it you know, was great. Um, and the people, the people made the difference and, and the, the experience of just being away from your phone for that many days, well, that'll change your life. You know, you realize not every, you don't have to be at someone's back and call every two seconds. It's okay if it goes to voicemail or it's okay if that text message waits an hour, you know, take the moments that you have in life. If it's with your kids, with your dad, your grandpa, your wife, and put the phone away because life is short, man. Couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. And being out in the timber like that really helps put things in perspective. 
hundred percent, man. You realize you're just a dot on this earth, man. Yep. And, and what the weird one of the, maybe the weird thing, and I don't even know if I should share it on here. You can edit it if you want. Is um, you start thinking about all the warriors in the past when you're out there, right? You're like, man, in the Civil War they lived like this. They they went to the bathroom out in the woods. <laughs> they were, you know drinking out of streams they were dealing with the dirt and the mud i mean you are dirty when you're out there man it's it's crazy how you and you just get used to it but you think man vietnam you think about i don't not to get political but you just think man the people have sacrificed a lot because they did this for more than 15 days they did this for years and months and you just have a new appreciation of the freedoms that you have because of the sacrifice these guys made. I mean, I can't even believe or think about how horrendous. I mean, I had the best sleeping bag, the best sleeping pad, you know, really good food. They didn't have any of that. And it was cold, 26 degrees at night and stuff. I mean, I just got a new appreciation for for this country and for anyone that sacrificed for it because it's like you guys i can't even believe the stuff that they would have to do to to fight the they're fighting a war and living in these conditions it blows your mind when you start thinking about it it most certainly most certainly does yeah and there's no reason to edit that out that's for sure i mean that's what we if anything that's what we take for granted every day I did. And I don't. I mean, I, I was in the military. I, I know the sacrifices. But um, until you're actually living like that, I mean, even a homesteader, you're living like a homesteader out there. You're like, how did they do this through the winters? How did they how did the Conestoga wagon thing work out? I mean, how did they do this stuff? Because I have a water filter. <laughs> you know, I have really good food, you know, and and man. I, it's just a whole new appreciation for living. Everything you do out there is work. And that's how life used to be. And that's not how it is anymore, at least not in my life. And I, I'm not rich or anything, but I, I take a lot for granted in this household that of mine. I guarantee you a lot for granted. Yeah, I think we all do. Well, Blaze, uh, I think we should probably wrap up here. Where can the listeners, I know you mentioned it before, but if any of, Anybody in the audience wants to bounce some questions, go through a gear list, uh, potentially talk about uh, Colorado elk hunting, how can they get in contact with you to have those discussions? Uh, you can get you can get me on uh, Facebook at WitPro Hunters, um, or you can get me on Instagram at wit.pros, um, or you can um, get, in, get in touch with me on the service side app. I'm on there. Um, a lot i haven't been in the last couple of weeks i've been out west but you can you i'm a member of that i'm a field staff member on there you can get a hold of me on there for sure in the chats um yeah i mean we own wild turkey smoke houses in, in northern wisconsin so you can get on wild turkey's facebook page and you can get me um i'm willing to give you guys my locations my otc units i went to i am a non-scarcity kind of guy the more the better Sometimes I get selfish, but and I don't want to give out the information, but I know it's for the betterment of hunting. So I will tell you everything that I, I learned from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, in 53, 68, 681, 
64 a little bit, 65. If you're going to those units, um, I will help you as much as I possibly can. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on and that's being very, very generous. And we need more people like that because we're all in this together as far as the hunting community and need to not have so much division. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast and willing to offer that knowledge. Yeah. Anything, anything I can do to help out this service side and, um, you know, it actually, it helps me more Thorin. every time I, every time you give, I feel like you get way more back. So, uh, selfishly I keep giving. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you. I would agree with you. It's funny how that works out. So. All right, bud. All right. Uh, I appreciate the, everyone listening. Yep, absolutely. And thanks everyone for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast.